This week on A Lively Experiment, the governor says the second wave of COVID is here and potentially more restrictions. And just a few more days until the presidential election, when will we know the results here and nationally? A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Bob Walsh, Executive Director for the National Education Association, Rhode Island, Sun Chronicle columnist Donna Perry, and political reporter for the Public's Radio, Ian Donis. Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Hummel. Thank you for joining us this week. The election is just a few days away. We'll get much more on that in just a moment. But first, the coronavirus rates are on the increase pretty dramatically in Rhode Island, so much so that Governor Raimondo at her weekly briefing is threatening to go back to more restrictions. She's using the phase two phrase. We're not sure whether she's going to go back to that. Ian, let me begin with you. Uh, We're taping on a Thursday morning. The governor's uh, Uh, has scheduled a special briefing on Friday. So by the time you watch this, you may know some of the restrictions, but clearly this is not good news in a variety of areas. That's right, Jim. And if there is any good news is that we're, uh, we're still at a point where people's actions can do something to improve the situation. But I don't think it's any surprise that people got a little bit complacent over the late summer, early fall, as the numbers improved. It's natural in warmer weather. People wanted to get out, be with their friends, family, extend their social circle. But we knew from the outset that COVID was not going to go away anytime soon. This is a long-term situation. And understandably, people are very tired of dealing with the situation. It's frustrating. We're very limited from our quote unquote, normal activities. But, you know, it's it's predictable in many ways. Many people, I remember speaking with the House Republican leader, Blake Filippi, when the situation first uh, came up in, in uh, March, and he said, well, I'm concerned about the fall. So here we are in the fall. No surprise that things have gotten much worse. Donna, I also wonder, you watch Governor Baker in Massachusetts and, and here in Rhode Island, the governor can only do so much exhorting. I think she had the bully pulpit back in the spring. Look, the, it was fresh. It was new. As Ian said, we've all got a little bit of uh, COVID fatigue. I wonder how much of her urging is falling on the right ears at this point. I get the feeling most of us are doing as much as we can. I, I would agree. And I would agree with um, uh, Ian's observations totally. Like, I, I mean, I think when all this began, here we are eight full months later. Uh, and this thing obviously has a grip. It's not just the U.S. or, you know, New England's obviously all over the world. So I, I would agree with that. I think it is difficult for any governor to maintain, you know, really strong cooperation. Um, you know, you have a long time now with people with this saying, if you're a small business owner in a small restaurant in a cafe, you know, you can't have everyone just go under We did return people to school and colleges, which I have long advocated. I think that's the right move. I think it's very important, though, for the media to give context to these numbers at this point. And I would point out that uh, Governor Baker kind of had a back and forth. I don't know if there's the Boston Globe or who it was. He's been very clear, and he said, I want this reported correctly. However, we are seeing spikes, at least in Massachusetts. He, He was very clear. He said, this is not... 
a mad rush of older people being, you know, zoomed in ambulances to the hospital. That's a misreporting if that is being portrayed. So I would caution that the, he said this is largely younger people, even under 30. So what does that tell you? You have college students walking all around Boston and certainly Rhode Island. You have grad students. You have people who've let down the guard. Uh, you know, the NFL went back in. You have people all over, you know, the region or whatever, and people go to games. I think there's lots of reasons, as Ian has said. Um, so I think it's very important, and I've been very critical of a lot of the media throughout this, to give context to these numbers. This is not last April. No one should diminish what it is, however, uh, but I think we did expect the second wave. And just a note on Ramondo, I want to I want to give her a little bit of credit. I think generally she has done a decent job. Uh, I think she takes an approach now as Baker is, and is certainly with the school situation. And I, I know Bob probably wants to weigh in, but I think it's very smart and appropriate to not rush and do this one-size-fits-all reaction. If you have a spike in a community or a school, a spike of several is different from one individual or one kid. And I think it's going to be very important that, that that's the approach. Bob, go ahead and weigh in. I think we're rapidly approaching a tipping point where we will once again be doing full distance learning. I don't know what day that is, but it's a matter of when, not if. Um, and for multiple reasons. Uh, the governor correctly points out in her press conferences that we do not see widespread cases among students, especially the younger students, but we are seeing an increasing number of cases among teachers and education support professionals and faculty and staff in higher education. Um, so we're reaching a critical mass problem where the delivery of services is impossible. And you lay that over uh, the people who say that in-person education is preferable are absolutely correct, but that's not what we're doing now. We are cobbling together this hybrid situation where someone is trying to teach, doing what I'm doing right here, looking at a screen for half the students at home, while the other half of the students might be sitting in a classroom in front of them. And we're not getting the quality that we had hoped to achieve just because you cannot divide your attention in that way and adequately serve those two different populations. I think it was uh, by and large, the right idea to give teachers and support professionals the opportunity to meet their students when schools open, uh, because it was easier to do the transition last March when uh, we already knew the students. And I think we are inevitably going to get to the point, um, I don't know when, but soon, where we have to go back to the full distance learning model. And I don't say that with any joy. It's just it's just the nature of the circumstances. Bob, what, Bob, what struck me is when I when I was talking to the governor yesterday, she said a hundred thousand kids are in school and forty nine thousand are doing distance learning. So it's a full third that are already out. Are those the figures that you understand too? Yeah, and I think that one of the other issues, Jim, because we gave and rightfully so gave parents a choice. Um, some are taking that license in a way that is unwieldy at best. In other words, well, I've chosen in person, but my kid, uh, I don't want them going today and tomorrow, so can they call into the distance learning mechanism? Or alternatively, oh, I think things aren't that bad in my community. I've chosen distance learning, and I'd like to send them back earlier than we agreed to. Since the model 
in most districts was based on the number of students who had signed up for in-person and they set up the classrooms and the buses and everything else with the appropriate level of distancing, you can't have that influx of the 49,000 coming back, which was the problem earlier in September, because it threw the numbers off and the distancing off and the cleaning off and everything else. Um, so I think, I think we're going to get, again, no joy in this. It's just, you, you look at the data, and we are data-driven. I mean, I have pointed out the governor was a truth-in-numbers person for a reason that I fought with her over on the pension issue, and the truth-in-numbers is we are going to get to the point, uh, both in higher education and K-12, where we're going to have to go back to the other model. And Ian, I, Ian, no I, want, Ian I wonder if... If the governor does put on more restrictions on Friday, we'll know by the weekend how that's going to go over practically and whether there's going to be compliance. She's talking about small gatherings. I mean, it's almost like it seems like she's preaching to the wrong people who are listening to this press conference every week. It's the people maybe who are not paying attention that we need to get at. But I think she's kind of at the end of her rope. She can only do so much at that briefing every week. That's very true, Jim. I mean, it, oh, the spread or lack of spread of the, of the virus is very dependent on people's behavior and how they respond. You know, we see how this issue is playing out nationally, where some people don't even believe that there actually is COVID-19. And, you know, this is kind of the backdrop for the presidential race. You know, there's a, uh, just as there's a split between Biden and Trump, there's a split between people who take the virus seriously and believe seriously in the importance of where a mask and other people who kind of throw caution to the wind and think it's not a real issue. But you're right. I mean, there's only so much the governor can do. Uh, I think Donna's right. I think the governor's tried to walk a balance in offering some leadership while trying to avoid being too heavy handed. Of course, uh, there are always going to be critics who are unhappy about the extent to which aspects of the economy have been closed. But it's it's just a very difficult situation. And, and we're going to be dealing with it for some time to come. And that's why, if I may, just Bob, and I do respect your perspective. I know it's not perfect for teachers. That's an understatement. I get all that, Bob. But, you know, there's a you talk about report and data. There's a report out nationally, I think it was yesterday, and it said that uh, the percentages of women, working women, who have said they're going to be at the end of their rope if their kids have to be home five days a week. Um, they don't use school as a babysitter. But listen, uh, we have a country oh, <laughs> where kids go to school. And I just think that to say, because it's difficult, it's far from perfect, um, I applaud the schools and they are making an effort. I just think everyone, everyone is going to have to keep making this really imperfect situation, keep going forward. And I think it, if hybrid is working, it's, yeah. It's, it's not, Donna, and it's just not, and I, and I see it get worse every day. And it's not just because of simple math. If you were a teacher, let's say you're a teacher right now, Donna Perry is a classroom teacher and someone in her uh, six feet distancing is exposed, you would have to quarantine for 10 days uh, to see how that case uh, waited, uh, according to our own Department of Health, and another 14 days after that to prove you're asymptomatic. So that takes you out of service for 24 days. Um, we're seeing those numbers grow school by school among the teachers and education support professionals, and we are simply running out of adults to provide service in school for in-person learning. I, I'm not making this stuff up. This is real. This is happening right. no, now. I, I agree spreading and we are, and it's not getting lower. In fact, one of the theories 
why we're seeing a spread in the younger adult population is in fact that they're those with children have the kids back at school and they are either back in the workplace or they are out and about in the community whereas before they were in the spring they were locked down with their kids and they are getting exposed and they are getting coronavirus so there are unintended consequences of, of again we wish this was gone we wish everyone was back in school full time everyone's lives would be easier no joy in saying this, but you know I can read data as well as uh, many people can read data, and I think this is where we're going. Donna, you get the last word on this, and then we got to move on. Well, I would just quickly say, uh, Bob's alma mater, Brown University. Uh, there is a data scientist team led by, I believe the name is Emily Oster. She was out with a report a few weeks ago. The media, a lot of the media, chose not to give it any coverage. They are doing data. They're following the science. We have to follow the science wherever it goes, and their report from following across the country in September, now this is out of Brown. The Atlantic picked it up, I don't know if other media saw it, and you guys maybe did cover it, but um, basically the report said minuscule percentages that schools are not super spreaders by any stretch. You're missing the underlying point. I mean, not about the kids being super spreaders, data. the adults are getting it in the outside world. Yeah, but, but in that report, the she said there she the to teach the kids. The but kids in the report, virus, but if all the teachers do, the system doesn't work. That, that's not what the science out of the Brown no, no, University. No, no, no. You're talking about a different set of statistics. You're talking about whether the kids are super spreaders. No, it's not just the kids. teachers don't live in the schools, they live in the community, and the community is seeing a massive outbreak. And when the teachers and the education support professionals are exposed and have to quarantine, they are not available for in-person learning. And the so, system breaks down. That's just, the point. not about the kids being sick. Thought, and Jim, I'll only bother for 10 more seconds. <laughs> Fauci says this could go on into 20, uh, 2022. Are you proposing that most kids in America will, will not be in physical school for up to two years? I think that's I think that's how a pandemic operates. There's no zero cases. And I think it's just again, I, I, who's going to be the rules are now pay attention to this because this is easy. Math. All right. One more are, minute. You Bob, you get one more minute. Go ahead. One more minute. Are if a teacher or a support professional is exposed, they have to quarantine. So they are therefore they could still distance teach, but they can't go to the school building and teach. And as those numbers continue to grow, there are no adults available to teach the kids. All right. And you, we will can't, and you can't put other people in the classroom because you violate the small groups and social distancing. It's difficult. I, I, I'm happy about this. I'm just hear what I hear from you know, the 12,000 uh, teachers and 5,000 education support professionals out there. This is what we're All seeing. right. All right. We got to move on. Uh, take it out in the backyard. We'll go to the next topic. Folks, have you voted yet? There's a pretty good chance in Rhode Island, if you're watching this, you have already. The latest stats, 50% of the people who voted in 2016 overall have already cast the ballot, either by mail ballot or early voting. This week, I had a chance to sit down with Nick Lima. He's the director of uh, elections in Cranston to talk about this, talk a little bit about how this, you know, kind of the new normal for us is working. Here's some of what he had to say. 
First, we expected a lot of mail ballots with the pandemic. And I think a lot of the people that saw early voting as an alternative said, you know what, I think I'll try that out instead of, of, of doing the mail. Maybe they didn't trust the Postal Service. Just in Cranston, we've had 13,000 mail ballot applications. That in and of itself is a record. It's a significant chunk of the electorate. Instead of mailing it back, bring it here to City Hall, bring it to any drop box at any town or City Hall statewide, including us here in Cranston. It's right out front. It's 24 hours a day accessible to anyone. To date, we've had close to 4,000 voters utilize that drop box, which is significant. But with early voting, we could easily see eight or 9,000 as well. So we're gonna have more people voting before election day than on it. We're gonna have a very good idea, I think, probably late night election night um, between the early voting results, which will be released after 10 p.m. from city and town halls. The uh, in-person election day results at the polls will always release election night and a good chunk of those mail ballots. There's always ballots that are counted after election day. Uh, there's an issue with the mail ballot. The voters are going to get contacted by the State Board of Elections. They have up to seven days after the election to correct that issue. So even after election day, yes, there'll be some results still trickling in, but I think the vast majority of it will be counted and known on election night. We've made a very concerted effort right from the beginning, right from our planning stages back in the summer, to open up everything, to go all out on this, and make sure it's done right so that the voters have a good experience, a positive experience on Election Day. But no matter what, then whether it's early voting or it's voting by mail, we're going to see both more heavily utilized in the future, and this really is going to change the dynamic of elections going forward in Rhode Island. We'll never have an election again like we, we had one prior to 2020. And that may be the final statement on the pandemic is that it really will change the way we vote. Ian, the Board of Elections reported 100,000 people already have taken advantage of early voting, something that didn't exist two years ago. Right. And on one, on, if you look at this from a civic point of view, it's great to see the level of interest in voting in Rhode Island and other states. Uh, at the same time, we have to acknowledge the picture is very mixed. There are legal battles playing out in many states over voting issues. And, you know, we see the, the frame is that, you know, Democrats want more people to vote. In some cases, Republicans want fewer people to vote. The president has obviously tried to impeach the integrity of mail ballots, whereas most experts say that mail ballots, with very few exceptions, are a very uh, fair and uh, honest way of voting. So it'll be fascinating. And of course, the big question is when we will know the results of the presidential election. I mean, if, if there are a lot of possible outcomes from a narrow Trump victory to a really big Biden victory, and the question is whether that will be clear on uh, election night, November 3rd, or it might take a couple of days afterwards. And of course, we're waiting to see how the candidates and particularly President Trump will message on that if the results are not immediately clear on the night of November 3rd or the next morning. Donna, how does it look your way up in Massachusetts? Is it brisk also on the early voting? Very much so. Um, I don't know the exact number. It's it's over a million. I think um, Mass has done a, a very good job. I don't see that there has been uh, major issues, except there was a notable thing on the weekend. I do think it's an isolated thing. I'm sure you guys saw that in Boston. Someone torched and lit on fire uh, a ballot dropout box that was out at Copley Plaza where they, they have um, a voting location. And I think it's, um, you know, they take it seriously and the Secretary of State wants, they think the FBI is involved. What is this about? And then there was, you know, a little other mischief, but, um, you know, they, they, you know, I don't think that's any kind of big organized thing. And, you know, I have spoken out about, I, I think the president has been very inappropriate to 
um, create this issue about, you know, ballots and all that stuff. I, I, I just don't think that's appropriate. And I think the states are doing a very good job. I would agree. I think this will uh, may probably forever change people's uh, voting habits. And um, I think we're up to over 70 million Americans have already voted. So, you know, what these final days mean, we'll see. But with the early voting, I think it's here to stay. And I, I but I agree with Ian also, you know, the proof will really be Tuesday night of how uh, individual, you know, districts and states can see how quickly they can really assemble these vote tallies. Bob? Uh, I've taken advantage of early voting or absentee voting for years uh, in the Democratic stronghold of East Greenwich, over half of <laughs> voted. That's no, it's no joke. There are no Republicans on the ballot for school committee or town council in East Greenwich this year. And uh, I don't think there'll be any Republicans getting a majority of the vote in the uh, this town that has turned very blue uh, uh, in the 15 years since I've lived here. Um, and of course, I think Nellie Gorbea, I think Nellie Gorbea deserves a lot of credit um, because she has made the information accessible. I watched my ballot tracked. I dropped it in the uh, in the box in front of the police station here. That's where our, our box is for dropping ballots. I saw it get checked in at the Board of Elections. I saw that my signature was certified and now it's ready to be uh, run through the machines. Um, and I think it's uh, it will, as Ian said, this will change how we vote in future elections for the positive, for the positive. All right, let's do this. Let's do outrages quickly, and then I do want to get to the national elections. Um, Donna, let's begin with you. Do you have an outrage or a kudo? Yeah, I, I do, and um, it's about uh, the national sixty minutes interview that just you know ran recently, um, and it's not the part where Trump definitely had a tantrum and walked out on Leslie Stahl, which um, you know that was not a good look, as he would say. But there was a second piece where Nora O'Donnell interviewed Kamala Harris, and I thought it was an odd um, and and my odd unusual uh, display by Harris, and I I think it showed up the fact that. She really hasn't had um, sort of serious, you know, journalist interviews through this whole uh, period. And I think part of that is the national media somewhat carrying their ticket, which I think is inappropriate. If anyone caught it, um, there wasn't that much coverage of it. And again, I think they didn't want to show her in that light. Nora O'Donnell and Ian, you know, you're a daily, very busy political journalist. Nora O'Donnell did not ask difficult questions and they were not something unexpected. She just talked to her about her record as the most liberal member of the Senate. She bristled at that. And I think you should be able to defend that. And she also asked that her views seem quite the left of Biden. And she used the word socialism and progressivism. And, um, and she just had these laughing outburst answers. But my outrage is the fact that She's not, I, I think Harris has been kind of carried through this process. She's not been out there in a lot of difficult interviews. I just thought it was odd. It was not really reassuring of, of a person who, you know, she's VP on the ticket. She's a historic choice. So, you know, people who've wanted to see more of her, she's been oddly not that out there. But that, it was like mocking laughter. Uh, and I would hardly say CBS News is not Fox News. So I just thought it was odd and it was not a reassuring display. But the fact that the rest of the media, um, which is, you know, they New York Times and CNN, they're like the PR agents for the Biden campaign. The fact that they just don't think that's interesting or worth covering in any way, I think shows you a lot of where we are at this point in this race. Uh 
Okay, Ian, what do you have? Outrage or kudo? I am going to go in a different direction. I want to take a moment to remember Erica Nadowski, a former reporter for the Associated Press in Providence, who died in early October at age 46. Uh, the cause is still not clear. She had a very sudden illness, and she had been the picture of health before that. Erica was a lovely person. She was a fine reporter. She had left journalism and gotten into becoming an environmental advocate, but she was just a wonderful person with a really real appetite for life. And not to sound trite, but there's so much division and difficulty and hatred in the world that it's important to appreciate that we're just here for a very short time. Erica was is gone way too soon. It's important to be kind to the people around us and to appreciate our, our friends and family and, and all the opportunities we have in life. Yeah, well said, Ian. Thank you for that. Bob, what do you have? Yeah, that was very well said, Ian. Thank you for saying that. I'll, I'll go in a different direction, too. Um, been taught to be magnanimous in victory. I do believe that uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris are going to be inaugurated on January 20th. I think the victory is going to be a lot larger across the country than anyone is currently predicting, because those that predict were very concerned. But uh, what I want to say about that is many Rhode Islanders will be called to serve on the national scene to repair the country from the damage that has been done in the last four years. And I unequivocally give them my full support in making those choices. I think it's very likely Governor Raimondo will go to Washington. I don't think that's abandoning us. I think that's serving Rhode Island and the country at the same time. If any of the four members of our congressional delegation, all of whom would be excellent choices for cabinet positions or other positions at the national level, decide to engage in that service, I think that's terrific. And we, you know, we'll get by, we'll, we'll figure it out here if they choose to serve at that level. And I think there'll be a whole bunch of Rhode Islanders, not me, uh, who end up serving in the Biden administration. And that will be great for us and great for the country. Some names you know, some names you have probably forgotten, some folks who just passed through and spent a little time here uh, in college, some who uh, have their roots here. And I think it's terrific. I think there's going to be a wonderful list of Rhode Island associated people serving this country and helping to rebuild it when Joe Biden is President Biden. And I'm very, very excited about that. Donna, we only have a couple of minutes left. Any predictions? I mean, we may not know even a week from now overall, but I think I think we're going to get some indicators on election night. What is your feeling as we go down the stretch in terms of the presidential race? Well, I um, won't surprise you. I'm not as confident and, on the outcome um, as Bob is, and I respect Bob's uh, opinion um, quite quite a bit. And he actually has a lot of insight in polls. I mean, I I guess what I have seen uh, even two weeks ago. I would say I felt that Trump was not going to make it. Um, he's barnstorming the country and obviously he's letting, you know, COVID regulations go to the side. That's not correct for a president to do that. Um, and I've criticized him about that. But I would just say that um, I think the polls, however, are very tight. Um, and there are even some Democratic consultants. And Bob, you follow this very closely. You know that some are a little nervous and they're having a little PTSD from 2016 when Hillary was continually projected as in the lead. I realize this is not the same race and the dynamics are different. And now the public has actually gotten to watch how Trump really operates in the White House. So I just think that it, it's very tight. And the one thing I would say is there, I do think that there, it, the, 
pandemic is on the ballot either way, you know, and I think he bungled it. That side of people are, are really going to, you know, just say, get this guy out of there. And there's lots of reasons they feel that way. His personality is on the ballot. Um, that's very, you know, there's a lot of strong feelings, obviously, about that. But I also think 2021 and who really is going to sort of have the right approach to get us out of the on the ballot. Donna, I'm sorry I got to hold you there. It's never enough time. Donna and Bob and Ian, thank you so much, folks. A lot is going to happen over the next week. Will we have a president a week from now? We'll all be in it together. We'll be back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.